Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Dian Den, Dian Den, which is, of course, Hindi for Achtung, Achtung, in a hoarse uh, voice here from me after a weekend of gigging. <laughs> if you're listening on the day of release, then 80 years ago today, the British minister, Sir Stafford Cripps, the austere communist, basically, was sent to India with an offer of post-war self-government in exchange for India's cooperation in the war effort. He was basically sent to India to get him out of London because he was a pain in the arse. Also today, that, that's a, a fair assessment, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, I think so. Churchill, Churchill didn't like him. Attlee didn't like didn't him. Didn't like Jib at all. They didn't, he's a, he, was a, he was a pain. So they, they, gave him, <laughs> they gave him a thankless task and he fulfilled it. Um, also today, the BBC uh, broadcast news bulletins for the first time in Morse code for the benefit of resistance fighters on mainland Europe. Um, uh, yeah, producers, yeah, it's interesting. The, the producers of We Have Ways of Make You Talk have uh, rejected my attempt to have this broadcast in Morse code. Anyway, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to do a minute of it at some point, haven't we? Yes, for the hardcore We Have Ways listener, a whole episode in Morse, imagine. Um, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. That was a busy old day in 1942, Jim, wasn't it? It certainly was, and uh, you've had a busy weekend, haven't you? Been, yes. Been, we've been we, yes. fundraising, good for you. Yes, uh, in Cheltenham last night, we, we uh, well, we did two shows in Cheltenham yesterday and we put both of them over to to the Disaster Emergency Committee um, uh, appeal for Ukraine because it just felt like a, it felt like the, the right thing to do because it, because, well, you know, good on um, you. What, 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 what can a soft-handed celeb like me do but, um, you know, hand over my receipts, <laughs> basically. Um, thanks to everyone who has so far, on the subject of which, of, of fundraising, thanks to everyone so far who has committed to our Kit Off 22. For those that don't know, this is a model-building competition that we've come to run annually now. The rules are simple. You can't spend more than 30 quid on a kit. And it's £10 to enter. We will also, from We Have Ways, chuck in £10 for every entry. And all the proceeds will go to the relief fund for the people of Ukraine. The deadline to send pictures of your final model build is the 31st of May, using the hashtag KITOFF on Twitter. So there's plenty of time. Um, Simon Red 5 Models is running that, and he's done an amazing job. And we've had a, we've, a, 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 a wonderful response. So keep those coming. And we've received this correspondence from a new listener this week, which is a reminder of why the Second World War is such a universal experience. This is from Rob Lynch. Hi, Alan James. Just discovered and loving the pod. Now binge listening the last 400-odd episodes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fascinating and a great listen. It's reignited my passion to discover my grandparents' role in the Second World War, which covers Norway, Burma, North Africa and Casino. Wow. Wow, Gosh. No, that's, imp that's impressive heritage, isn't it? They, they got around. Um, yeah, there you go. That's how, how global things were. Anyway, Jim, what, what have you been nosing around in? Because you, where did you go last week? You went somewhere interesting last week, didn't you? Yeah, I was up in I was up in Scotland, um, and uh, I went to on my way up to Scotland, up yes, to St Andrews, where <coughs> where I am a visiting research fellow. Um, uh, oh, really? Uh, yeah, my little bit of sort of. Um, um, very, very mild and rather spurious academic credentials. But Are you obviously, an academic, you know, Jim? Are you an academic? Well, not really, you know, not really. <laughs> but, but I do have this post at St Andrews University. So that's very right. nice. And they're, they're jolly nice people up there. I'm Ali Ansari, yeah. friend of the show. Phillips Pace yeah. O'Brien, friend of the show. Yeah. So it's yeah. great to catch up with them and fantastic to talk to, to, to Phil about, you know, I mean, obviously he's been going mad on logistics and more yes. on Twitter and stuff. And I think it's gone from having yes. 2,000 followers to about 800 million um, in, in two weeks or something. So yes. Well, I mean, for those who don't know who Phillips is, we, we, we spoke to Phillips, um, uh, well, probably a couple of years ago now. My my memory of the two years of the pandemic is like a great big sort of mashed potato with no, yes. no there's no signposts. No. There's none of the normal It's, it's, it's just a block of time, isn't it? It's a block of just time. Just a block and, of time. And... But, but we spoke to Phillips and Phillips, Phillips is interested in, in war as um, basically the, 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 the journey of a raw material 
the, the journey of raw material from being a raw material to the battlefront, isn't he? Yeah. He's not. He's not particularly interested in. He says the human story, the heroics, the the sort of endurance and all that. He says that's that's good as a human story, but it doesn't explain what happens. And so, what he's interested in is war purely as logi- industrial, logistical, and the delivery of that stuff to the battlefield. And whoever's best at that, he thinks it tends to tends, tends to, to win. Um, tends to win. Um, and uh, and I, I remember when when he first came on the podcast, he said sort of quite controversially, or, or, or for some people very controversially, the thing about the Eastern Front when you look at it is actually not a great deal of the industrial German industrial effort is being delivered to the Eastern Front. For all the talk of how the Eastern Front is where the war is fought and won, he, he says when you look at it in ter- in those terms, in those sort of economic resource terms, yeah. it's not really it's not really the way that the war gets played out. You know, that the German resource effort is going into fighter defence more than it is into, say, tanks, isn't it? He says, yeah. I think it's tanks is 3%, fighter like defence, fighter, de- yeah, something like that. I mean, these are, I'm remembering these. Fighter defence is 45 or 43. Exactly, or it's 45, yeah. which is 45. So he kind of says, which means you've got to have another think about, the you know, whether the strategic bombing campaign is supposedly a failure if the Germans are spending all that effort on trying to defend themselves from it. And if they're, if they're building planes when they could be building tanks, which they can't build the tanks because they've got to build the planes because of the pressure they're under in the sky. Anyway, so so Philip, that's Philip's way of, of looking at all this stuff. And it's and it's really very, very interesting. And of course, with the, the current situation in Ukraine, people, he's been writing about that from that point of view. And uh, people are very interested in it on him. It's, it's a, I mean, it's because he says on the day of the battle, you look at the Kursk, for instance, he says, if you total up all the tank losses um, in, you know, that month in 1943, the Germans are losing tanks absolutely everywhere on the Eastern Front, yeah. not just in that one place. And so if you if you sort of if you zoom out, Kursk isn't that important, is what he's saying, which is, of course, to some people. Exactly. Well, it depends where your importance is. If your if your import, yeah. if if your importance on how you look at the war is is in is on the human drama and loss of life and boots yeah. on the ground, then obviously the, yeah. the Eastern Front win, and, and China and and so on win hand down. But but yeah. if you're looking at it in terms of of war effort, industrialized effort, yeah. and and what is ultimately the deciding factors, then it's a it's a different emphasis, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it's, it's which really is which, after all, was Stalin's view. Stalin's view was this is a war of motors, and the per, the, the economies that can produce the well, most motors well, will win. Yes, well, well, and he was absolutely right, and I think that, you yeah. know, the, the the results of the war absolutely proved that. But I mean, we, that we, out, we, yeah. we should we should sort of go on to this in a, a bit more in a, in a minute. But but what I do want to say is, is on my way up to St Andrews. Yes, yeah, that's um, what I, I called I asked it. A, you, a, wasn't it? A, 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 a Otley in West Yorkshire, yeah. um, which is where the Second World War Experience Centre, yeah, um, now is and this was set up by dr peter little who i think was at university of leeds if i remember rightly he was a sort of great military historian and chronicler and stuff and he suddenly realized um sort of 25 years ago that that obviously what had happened to the first world war veterans was going to happen inevitably to the second world war veterans and it was time to sort of do something about it so he he got them to he got started talking to veterans and interviewing veterans and also saying look you know if, if you've if you're worried about, you know, your families aren't interested or, you know, and, you're, and you, you want to leave leave some of this stuff, you, you know, your clobber yeah. and papers yeah. and diaries and what have you and photographs, then leave it here and we'll look after it. And so he yeah. he raised a fund uh, and got it up and running. And it was originally, it was in Horsforth in, in north of Leeds. I remember going there yeah. a few times. Um, then they had a, you know, as it inevitably happens with a lot of these things, um, they had a bit of a sort of cash shortage. And ended yep. up in Weatherby, and they've now moved to a fantastic place in um, in Otley in West Yorkshire. It's, yep. it's actually surprising, you know. You can there's a it's a small town, so it's easy to park, it's easy to get to. The staff just could not be more helpful. I mean, I was being looked after by Anne Wicks, and she yep. sent me an incredible. I said, look, I'm looking for stuff about casinos. She sent me this huge list of people they had on their books. I've digitized. Um, or transcribed interviews stuff. Yep. She's put. She, she sent me the transcriptions. She's also put stuff on on discs for me. Yeah, and they've also got a whole load of other stuff, other material. You know, photo albums and stuff. And I was firing over a number of the photos that I was coming across to you, plus diaries yeah. and all sorts Amazing of stuff. And it was incredible. Stuff. It was incredible. Yeah. And and it was yeah. so user friendly. And you literally just rang up and said said I'd like to come on this particular day. This is what I want to look at. 
yeah. bent over backwards. I had the most profitable day I've I've had in a long time. You know, and, and occasionally you get that holy trinity for me, which is the person who's done the recorded interview, who's kept a diary, has got photographs, and has also done a little sort of unpublished memoir as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's the that's what you want. And I had a couple yeah. of those, um, uh, yeah. including a very interesting um, war correspondent and um, uh, uh, and some other people who've been there. The, some of the diaries were just were just absolutely fantastic. So so that was really good. And then on Excellent. on the way back from St Andrews, I called in to see Karina Birrell, friend of the show. Yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, of, of course, course her, her grandfather Harry Birrell. Um, and um, it looks like we may well be publishing her diaries under the kind of, you know, the umbrella of Voices of the Second World War that we're doing, that oh, series we're brilliant. doing. Uh, brilliant. And I've got the whole lot and uh, photographed them all, and um, it was wow. lovely to see her, and she's about to get married, so she was just about to head off on a hen party that weekend. Oh, and, lovely. And the first thing I saw, I saw Jamie, her husband-to-be, and he said, are you going to do another Jack Tanner anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> instant friendship for life <laughs> oh, brilliant so oh, yeah so it, was, it was, so it was a good little trip it was a good little trip and you're you're reading Naples 44 aren't you yes I've, uh, Norman Lewis someone someone tipped me off about that um, yeah it's a fantastic book. which an extraordinary an extraordinary book because um, uh, he was an Italian speaker wasn't he so yes. he 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 gets he gets headhunted and spotted and, and put into the um, intelligence uh, uh, operation around um, the you know the liberation of um, Italy, and ends up, um, in Naples, essentially sort of liaising with the police and doing law and order and trying to keep an eye on, trying to keep an eye on what's happening in the city, and you know you've got the police who were paid so badly that they're corrupt, but what else are they going to do? And and they you know as long as the the police the police have this whole thing as long as they crack down on petty theft everyone's happy with them they've got to stay out of the big crime though just so interesting and that absolutely amazing instant where there's banging and knocking heard in the catacombs under the city and lewis is sent to investigate with um with some americans they go and because there's a rumor that the there's ss stay behinds right. in the catacombs under the city so they go into the they go into the catacombs and the monks are livid the monks who look after the catacombs are living. One of them stands across the door to the, and they have to drag him away from the doorway. And they go in with their torches and realise it's just full. It's an ossuary, you know, it's full of bones. And they can't find anyone or anything. So they come back out again with the monks all shouting at them and all this sort of stuff, roaring at them if they touch the bones and all this sort of thing. And they come out and then the knocking's heard again. And then it stops. And, and it, the mystery is the most amazing little story. It's never the solved. The mystery is ne never solved. They never know what it was, who it was or anything. And then this absolutely extraordinary story where there's a an Italian-German boy called Saro who goes to the... who's been captured. And while he's being interrogated, says, when you turn the electricity back on in Naples, you're going you're, you're gonna to set off... The whole city's been booby-trapped and the whole city's going to be blown, you know, when you turn the electricity back on. whole city will be destroyed. So they evacuate the entire city. Or the, so this, this is what Lewis says. They evacu evacuate the entire city and then, you know, a great sort of tension, turn the electricity back on. Nothing happens. Two hours later, they say, all right, everyone, you can go back, into the, you can go back to the city. And he interrogates this boy and uh, um, it's the most amazing story. And he's 17 and he wants to be executed. He wants to be martyred for the Fuhrer. And, and basically, Lewis, Lewis, Lewis writes that he's mentally ill. You know, he's, he's mad. So you, you can't execute him. And, and just this, these snapshots into the chaos of, uh, you know, the power vacuum that comes after the Germans leave, you know, and the stories of the trials, you know, these, this old boy at the trial who go, who's saying to the judge, you know, the Germans, you and the, the Germans are just the same as you Americans. It doesn't make any difference to me who's, who's, um, uh, who's occupying the city. I'm, I'm not fussed. And the judge going, how dare you say that? And then the, and the, and the, this old guy showing his knob to the judge and being thrown out of court because the judge can't be bothered with it. It's just the most amazing portrayal of life um you know in the in the chaos of the liberation and i i, I recommend it to everyone because it's a diary yeah, as well it's, 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 it's absolutely fantastic he then gets posted to benevento which has been bombed the previous yeah. march <clears throat> um and it, and it's utterly destroyed so you know think 
I suppose, you know, think Maripol, think, any, yeah, you know, Aleppo, yeah. any what of these. What we on the telly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's completely crushed. And, and it's just like all normal life has gone. You yeah. know, all, all the kind of boundaries, all the kind of social mores, they, they've all just disappeared. And he, yeah. you know, he he's constantly battling kind of sort of, you know, corruption, the mafia, all this yeah. kind of stuff. But, but I first read this in 2004. Um, yep. Just after Iraq had been invaded, and then the you know we don't do reconstruction. The whole thing had yeah, yeah, sort of yeah, gone to yeah. port. We don't do nation building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and in September the twenty third, nineteen forty four, he finally gets re- posted away from Benevento. Yeah. Um. And he writes. In any case, setting aside all questions of my personal shortcomings, I have arrived at a time when, in their hearts, these people must be thoroughly sick and tired of us. A year ago, we liberated them from the fascist monster, and they still sit doing their best to smile politely at us, as hungry as ever, more disease-ridden than ever before, in the ruins of their beautiful city, where law and order have ceased to exist. And what is the prize that is to be eventually won? the rebirth of democracy, the glorious prospect of being able one day to choose their rulers from a list of powerful men, most of whose corruptions are generally known and accepted with weary resignation. The days of Benito Mussolini must seem like a lost paradise compared to this. You know, you talk about kind of, you know, patterns of human behaviour repeating themselves. And I remember reading that in 2004 and just thinking, wow, do we never learn, you know? It's just... You know, because the comparisons with with Baghdad and yeah. you know, and all Fallujah and all the rest of it, which is so so striking, it's yeah. amazing. It's a, it's an amazing book, an amazing book. He's an amazing writer. Yeah, he actually, then yeah. wrote a really good book about the mafia. Yeah, uh, oh, his, I mean, his writing. And he ended up sort of traveling. The you know, for, I mean, he's a travel writer, wasn't he? Yeah. So. His, his writing's really evocative. I mean, there's a, when he when he's at Salerno, there's um, there's the you know, the, 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 uh, he, he describes a German counterattack and and the the, the the German tanks are then shelled from the are shelled from the um, from the uh, by the fleet, yeah. He, and he describes that you know as each shell comes in from the naval guns, there's they're all they all feel the a breeze on them because the shells the guns are so powerful the shells are so powerful, and and the and he says shortly after crossing the Seely Bridge, I see a number of I saw a number of the German tanks which had almost reached us on the night of the fourteenth and had been put out of action by the naval shelling. Several of these lay near or in tremendous craters. In one case, the trapped crew had been broiled in such a way that a puddle of fat had spread under the tank and this was quilted with brilliant flies of all descriptions and colours. Right. I mean... Yeah, it doesn't get more vivid than that, does it? it vivid and unstinting. It's such a, it's such a good book. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and it's, a, it's uh, a nice little slim tone and, it's, and yeah, it's yeah, repu- yeah. it got republished some years ago by... by Elland, which is this, that's right. It's a travel publishing company. They mainly do travel yeah. books, but because he's yeah. a travel writer, and this is part of their staple. Yeah, it's a terrific yeah. book. Yeah, I know. mean, I was because I was he reading. He will be featured st- in Casino Forty Four. Yeah, assume. I was reading the style, you know, which we were talking about last week, mm. and um, which is a great big book mm. and an academic book by an academic, you know, for an academic uh, readership. So to switch to the Norman Lewis has been um, has been a, it's been a good a good change in. Um, because the because the writing's so vivid. I mean, the style is so interesting. Um, and we, I mean, obviously we talked about it at length last week. But I, I just because I finished it, and I, and um, it's just his, you know, his his thesis is the Germans lose the war by embarking on Operation Barbarossa, that that because they aren't capable of trying to pull off the thing they're trying to pull off, and every aspect of everything they do renders them more incapable and uh, and attrits them further and uh, and and after all you know there's the, the the paradox that the point of it is to to knock russia out of the war so that you can defeat britain because what britain but also because what britain really wants is russia to come into the war you're bringing russia into the war it's this sort of it's the sort of contradictions that at the heart of it but it just reminded me his analysis reminded me of the battle, it reminds me. The situation reminds me of the Battle of Britain. It's exactly. It really, really does. And and the interesting thing is, they don't learn from the Battle of Britain. That's that's no. what I think is so fascinating. No. I mean, because because what if you think about the Battle of Britain? What yep. have the Germans got wrong? Okay, so for, their intelligence is absolutely woeful. They've got a completely diabolical intelligence. Yeah. The, yeah, their logistics for supplying um, shortages and, and maintaining the effort is also really yeah. bad because their aircraft, their new aircraft, obviously have to come from Germany, and yeah. they've had to move everything up from Germany into North 
northwest France, you know, yep. Calais and, and into yep. Normandy. And it's yep. not just a question of flying in your Messerschmitt 101, 1010s and 109s and bombers and all the yep. rest of it. You've also got obviously yep. got to bring in your maintenance. Yeah. Uh, and there's degrees of maintenance. There's maintenance on the site. And then there's, okay, this is quite major. We need to do something a little bit more substantial. And so yeah. you need warehouses for that, and you need heavy lifting kit, and you need, yeah. you know, cranes yeah. and and yeah. you know hoists and uh, and all the rest of it. And that takes time, and obviously they just don't have enough. And, yeah. and aircraft production is down because it's suddenly competing with a whole load of other things, and they've decided yeah. to also go on a peace yeah. footing as well, which is insane. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. so consequently, their you know their their aircraft production isn't good enough for the task, and they haven't done their due diligence, and they haven't worked out what they need to yeah. do, and and the, it's all a bit of a wing and a prayer. But, but 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 more than that, Jim. Based on those, hubris. But but it's not just that. They don't know really what they're trying to achieve. Yes. They're, they're, That's absolutely right. The, 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 when you consider that, you know, the, the Army Group North, Army Group the, the South, the centre, the three, the efforts they're trying to make are all competing with each other rather than working together. Right. It looks like they're working together because they're attacking the Soviet Union. But actually what you've got is loads of generals all arguing for their own fiefdoms and their own glory and their own conception of how the battle should be run amongst each other. Plus the division between Halder and Hitler about, you know, the Moscow. The direction. The, yeah. the army are convinced that what you do is take the capital city because they're the army. And they and and they're thinking in Clausewitzian Paris, West 1870, West Fa- exactly Westphalian terms. They're trying to reproduce Paris of 1870. So they're thinking what you do is seize the capital. And after all, when they seize the capital in France in 1940, France, a global the global superpower that they have conquered, throws in the towel. So you, that's what they're thinking. Hitler doesn't think that's what they ought to do. Hitler's talking about destroying the Red Army. Encountering and destroying the Red Army, and that's how you overthrow the Soviet Union. But that, but, but, so there's a divided aim. There's a confused aim, and that's the same as that's the same as the Luftwaffe. What's the Luftwaffe actually trying to do in 1940 in the Battle of Britain? Well, they're trying to knock out the RAF, aren't they? But they don't. Well, have there a you clear go. So they're it. trying to they're trying to knock out the Red Army. They're trying to knock out the RAF, but they don't even know what the RAF is. They don't know about. No, they don't. They don't, really they don't know, know about, about the different commands. They, they don't, don't know about, know about fighter command. You know, so so they so, don't even know that fighter command exists. Yeah, and all, but all, exactly, exactly, right? So, but it's not just that. I mean, the, the, the similarities, I think, are, are glaring because I, I did a history project when I was 12 or something yeah. about, the, about the Battle of Britain. Yeah, good, and, good. You know, and, and I was going on what was available at the time and I, the conclusion I drew um, when, I was, when I was 12 was <clears throat> it doesn't matter if Britain wins the Battle of Britain. It just has to not lose it. Right. That, that's the that's all they have to do is not lose. The Germans absolutely have to win it. The British simply have to not lose it because the war will continue. And that's and, the same for the Red and, Army. That's exactly it, because all the Red Army have to do is not lose. And and, you know, the, the Battle of Smolensk, you know, Stahl talks about Smolensk a lot. And, you know, that she's a great encirclement, blah, blah, blah. But he says, actually, when you look at Smolensk, both armies are defeated at Smolensk. The German army's defeated at Smolensk because it doesn't it doesn't destroy the Red Army there. It's and attrition. So again, it's the attrition. So the the problem for the Luftwaffe in nineteen forty is everything they do attrits attrits yes. them. So any main effort they undertake is necessarily undermined. So and they haven't decided what the main effort is. Yeah. Because they don't know what they don't know anything about the RAF, and it's the same. And I think, I think it's so interesting because, because as you say, they don't learn the lesson of that, of the of the Battle of Britain. But that's because, after all, the difference, the, the reason you, they present Barbarossa as a victory and the Battle of Britain they know is a defeat, really, is because, is because. Um, at the end of Barbarossa, you end up where you are. It's an air, it's not it's a land battle. It's not an air battle. So you can look at the map and go, we've advanced hundreds of miles. Hmm. We're this far in. We must be winning. Whereas the Luftwaffe, because they you know they because it's an air battle and they're 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 back they're back where they came from. <clears throat> that looks like that looks like a defeat. Do, do, do you see what I mean? I do Whereas completely. You, I, I think the the interesting thing is also is is one of the one of the arguments I've always kind of made about. Battle of France in 1940 is it's 50% German brilliance and 50% French ineptitude. And and the successes the Germans have, this is the point that Stahl's making, is yeah. 
fifty percent, you know, gung honus and 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 competence at the you know at the spearhead yeah. within those those four Panzer groups. Yeah. And, and and unbelievable incompetence on the part of the of the Red Army yeah. to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the but, minute the red, but the minute the Red Army starts to resist, they're in real trouble. And again, exactly. And again, but again, I'm remind you know when th- there are stories from France, aren't there, of when the French pushed back and when there were actual French tank, but the French Germans get don't like together. It. Germans don't like like it. They run off. They 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 don't like it. One they, they don't like it up. They don't like, <laughs> like it, up it up them, them. right? <laughs> right. And the, and those first and this really really interesting bit in the style book where he talks about the first time they run into KV ones and T thirty fours. And the Germans yes, are basically going, the Germans are going, fuck, what are these things? Right? Yeah. We have no we have no answer to this. No. And and Well, and, and really... as we pointed out, they're still that you know, and, and he, he he sort of dissects very brilliantly, you know, they're still using an awful lot of kind of T thirty fives and thirty eights yeah. and, and yeah. Panzer ones yeah. and Panzer twos. Well, yes, they have well, they have more um, Stugs and, and Panzer threes yeah. and Panzer fours, but but nothing but, like the KV one, nothing like enough. But Jim. But Jim, what are German tanks in that first phase of the war? They're infantry tanks. They're infantry support tanks. Yes. Their job is to bust open, overwhelm infantry to let to get your infantry through. That's what the, so they're they're performing their first world war role essentially. Yeah. Do, do, do you see what I mean? I do. And then the and then suddenly the Russians come in and go, no, actually, what tanks are for is destroying other tanks. And the Germans are like, oh God, we hadn't thought of that. Yes. And I think it's so interesting. Yeah. The, you know, well, they, the they, they're relying on anti-tank guns to destroy other tanks, Ex- which exactly. they do still, you know, and, it's, and to be well, fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. in 1941, yeah, but, they do have a lot of incredibly good anti-tank the, guns. Yeah, but the Germans, but the, but the, 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 the Germans suddenly find that, that there's another way of doing this, that the Russians innovate. And when all, there's all this talk of German panzer innovation and Guderian, you know, and Guderian's, Guderian's behaviour in this campaign is, is, is terrible. Disobeying orders, arguing with his superiors. Um, Simply, simply, um, you know, uh, refusing to do as he's told, yeah. not paying attention to his logistic um, uh, thing, pressing on, pressing on for glory all the time. And, well, and well really, because and, and, that, and that is absolutely massive. that is absolutely a byproduct of France, isn't it? Yeah, you know well, where, where he is disobeyed. You know it, it, it's yeah. clock and not what's it? Klotz and Nick Kleben. Yeah, no, not Klotz, and that, Klotz and Nick, Yeah, that's it. Nick, Nick Klotz and Nick Kleben. Yeah, and, exactly. Well, it's all that, but but it's you know it's it's, it's you know von Kleist wants him to um, cross the Meuse further yeah. westward, northwestwards from from yeah. where he does. He doesn't want him to go at, at Sedan, but yeah. you know Guderian has been at Sedan. Uh, the Krieg schooler that was there in 1917 and knows it really, really well. Yeah. And so he wants to go there. So he just ignores von Kleist and does that. Yeah. And then when they get off, they then have to, to wheel westwards. They have to cross the Ardennes Canal. And again, yeah. he's told, he's ordered specifically by von Kleist to hold fire until everyone's caught up. Don't do it. And he goes, Don't you know, it. then he goes clock and Nick. Not Klotz and Nick Claven. Klotz and Nick Claven. <laughs> and, and, and off he goes again. And he's, as you, you you rightly point out, he's constantly disobeying orders and it pays off because, you know, he's the man yeah. on the spot. He's the guy who's kind of really founded these kind of, yeah. these kind of mobile armoured tactics, it's all arms stuff. And, and it, you know, we just cannot stress enough that when you're talking about Panzer divisions, you're talking about a unit which is all arms, completely motorised and mechanised. And yeah. that's what, that's what distinguishes it from, from other, other yeah, yeah. Um, divisions and other units and formations. And, and it pays off because you know they do get to the Channel Coast in ten days, and it is a yeah. great victory. And uh, but again, and because because but, arguably, and, and he just thinks he French... can do it again in in yeah. Soviet Union, yeah. and, and he can't yeah. because yeah. it's it's totally different rules. And I think what what the Starbuck does and lays out so brilliantly is on every single level, whether it's the sort of bringing up of food, whether it's the railways, you know, the, the, it's it's the whole premise of Barbarossa is made on a series of assumptions about which. Yeah. They haven't done their due diligence. They just haven't yeah. looked into it enough. And, and every know. time someone yeah. goes, well, hang on a minute, boss, you know, that might not work out like that. They go, forget it. You know, we've got will. The Fuhrer has decreed yeah. it. It's going to happen and we're, we're going to win. Yeah. And no one seriously yeah. doubts it because they've got this kind of superiority complex yeah. where they I mean, kind of think they're, they're the God's gift. But I mean, everyone buys into that. But there's some of the simple detail, you know, so that the, the guy in charge of railways keeps making promises yes. that he, you know, which is amazing. So, yeah, I can do that. Don't worry. And can't yeah. deliver. So that, uh, but, but just one well, of the, the railway thing, just to go stay on the railway. Oh, thing. Well, yeah, because it's the wide gauge railway, right? So Soviet trains are bigger and heavier. 
which means they travel further and need refueling and rewatering less, less often. It's amazing so, that, isn't it? So those we rewatering and refueling points are further apart. So even if you bring you change the gauge, you've still got to put new rewatering, and then you've got <laughs> to guard and you've more got coal. To, and, and you've got you know. to you, yeah, you've got to get coal to them. You've got to guard them. And all these things, and I, 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 that that simple point, and that Russian Soviet petrol is a different grade. It's completely and much lower octane. So exactly. Their, their, so, so their engines are a, a bit like their rifles, and every other yeah. aspect of their thing is is made for kind of. It, it's not as fine tuned, and the problem you have it if something's very. If something's very, very beautifully engineered, the problem is it hasn't got any margin for error. So if yeah. it gets a bit of grit in it, it doesn't work. Whereas yeah. if you've got a rough old bit of tin, and you know this is the whole point of the AK-47, yeah, that it doesn't matter if if you get grit in it or anything. I mean, it's not as effective, but it wasn't particularly brilliant in the first place, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it, but at least yeah. it still works. Exactly. The, exactly. the German stuff is just so so beautifully produced, and and the way it's produced completely works against any kind of possibility of mass production i mean they do produce masses of them but it, but yeah. not in not in the, the benefits of mass production are streamlining streamlining your materials and also the speed and cost of making them yeah so well, you can still produce masses but it's going to cost you more and it's going to take yeah. more man hours and all well, the rest of it which is why an mg34 takes 150 man yeah. hours and a brand gun takes 45 we're back we're back to philip's pace no problem we're, we're back right to philip's pace no problem perfect, but that thing circle. about the railway is just absolutely <laughs> amazing. amazing but but of course the germans that's not a problem because they're going to capture lots of russian ones yeah. <laughs> you know so it's going to be fine so the whole yeah. premise of Bob Russ is based on the assumption that they're going to capture lots of Soviet rolling stock both carriages and locomotives yeah. and then they'll and just the use Soviets, them for their own ends and the Soviets destroy all <laughs> the destroy all and so <laughs> that plan goes wrong and so suddenly yeah. the, you know and and it's worth just sort of mentioning again this point and, and this leads segues very very neatly onto that stuff that we've been looking at over the weekend yeah which is that, that it's really important to understand that when you're talking about kind of 3.4 million men, you're not talking about 3.4 million frontline troops who are brilliantly, no. brilliantly no. trained and in the first flush of youth. It's, you know, because an army is a big old beast and involves lots of different types yeah. of people in uniform. They're yeah. not all frontline, absolutely tip-top no. fighting troops. You know, that you're talking no. about kind of, you know, 25% of those, of your, yeah. your, your force it falls into that category. Yeah. And of course, necessarily, they're doing the hard yards of fighting, which means they're also the ones that are getting the most attrited. Yeah. And they're also the ones that are hardest to replace because training people properly, as opposed to just training them... It's time-consuming and expensive. It's time-consuming and expensive. And so, it, so, so what you see by the end of the Battle of Smolensk is that it's the wheels are coming off both literally and metaphorically before, as yeah. you pointed out last week, before the rains come, before the snow comes. Yeah, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break and then we'll talk about the, the stuff we've been, that you've just alluded to that we have been looking at over the weekend. Uh, we'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. So, James, um, you you sent me these documents over the weekend. Um, yeah, so I, I I picked these incredible. up. Incredible. Yeah, I picked these up um, a while ago when I was in the um, US archives at NARA. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a National Archives and Records Administration. I think is what it stands for. Yeah. NARA. Um, and this is at College Park. It's just outside the. It's just on the sort of northern edge of of Washington DC. It's actually in Maryland, strictly speaking. So it's outside of the. Yeah. The, yeah. District of Columbia bit, um, but anyway, Washington for all intents and purposes. And it's an it's an amazing place, uh, and this is a series of post-war interrogations um, reports that were made uh, yeah. uh, done with um, various people, and um, a couple of the ones that I sent over was was uh, General Burkhardt Muller Hillebrand, yeah, who later became a kind of post-war general as well after he was released from yeah. captivity, yeah. He's born in 1904, and and he'd been on the um, he'd been staff college in I think 1936 or something like that, yeah. and was yeah. then posted to the OKH, the Oberkommando yeah. to here as the Army General Staff, yeah. where he was on the sort of organizing organization and mobilization team. Yeah. Then he was one A, so the sort of, you know senior staff officer of one of the infantry divisions, 93rd Infantry Division. Yeah. 
yep. and then later returned to the OKH as adjutant to General Franz Halder, who was chief of staff yep. until middle of 1952. Yeah. And so he is writing about um, the state of preparedness for war of the German army in the autumn of 1939. Um, yep. State of organisation and mobilisation. And it's a fascinating document. And then I also kind of I briefly looked at one by um, uh, General Blumentritt, um, which yep. was about kind of sort of German infantry training historical yes. notes and that was also very interesting and basically the, you know what, what's interesting is conscription only comes in in 1935 yeah um and a bit like the americans they're faced with this sort of you know rapid expansion but in contrast to the americans and their rapid expansion they don't quite have the space or the money or the weaponry or the ammunition yeah to do it quite as efficiently yeah and they're also doing it when they don't have an existing conflict by which to kind of sort of judge their standards. Whereas the Americans in 1940 to 42 and a half, yeah, yeah. you know, they've, they can see what's going on, learn those lessons, go, OK, well, you know, we might want to take note of this. And they're yeah. just better placed to then adapt once they're in the battlefield even yeah. though they're also kind of expanding very rapidly from yeah. a kind of starting point. But, but, yeah. but you know, the 100,000 Army of Versailles is obviously kind of, you know, expanded in stages but only really starts expanding from 1935 onwards and again only yep. really expanding from kind of 1938 onwards yeah and so by 1939 first of um 1st of september 1939 yeah. you've got these you've got these different states you've got these waves so you've got divisions of the first wave which are yep. the regular army from 1935 onwards and pre-1935 yeah yep. you've then got the second wave which was is the reserve troops who are properly trained yeah uh, and then you've got the third wave, which is the land there, which are reservists who are not very well yep. trained. Yeah. Then you've got the fourth wave who are barely trained at all, but, you know, yeah. can do. And then you've got the reserve army after that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you, you also see that the, the training methods, you know, there's not enough live ammunition going on. Yeah. The infantry yep. particularly is is the bit that one associates, I think, more than anything else, really, with the you know these huge numbers of infantry divisions. And we've talked yep. about the spearheads being the panzer divisions, and boy, yep. that's really, really clear. Um, the artillery yep. is very, very maligned; doesn't have enough yep. machinery. All heavy artillery in 1939 is towed by horses. Yeah, you know, which again just seems so sort of anachronistic, doesn't it? It's just yeah. Because you know you're thinking about well, the kind of you know the, the Nazi war machine and well and he's know. but he talked Blumentritt talks about the the, the, the essential problem behind uh, equipment delivery and procurement is steel that there just isn't the steel to do it yeah um, which which again is the, you know the, 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 a major choke on uh, German ambitions and you know uh, uh, and that's him saying because people go why didn't they build more U boats why didn't they build more tanks well because there isn't the steel. You can't you can't do these things that that would have, you know that would have counterfactually won them the wars, for instance, if they had more U boats, because there isn't the steel. It's not possible. I think the breakdown that the um, uh, point fifty nine war potential breakdown. The following statistics show that of the manpower available until this time, only a very small proportion have been trained. So there's two age groups: twenty one to thirty five and thirty six to forty five that it's broken down into. And that's really, really interesting. So basically 21 to 35 is, that's a very broad um, band when you're looking at say Lancer infantry, yes. they're, they're 35 year olds are pretty old. Then 36 to 45, you're including them in your general manpower thing. You're, you're, you're talking about not having enough people. Which no other army in the world is doing. Exactly. So, so the total of able-bodied men available between 21 and 35, they estimate at 4,750,000 men. And then the total, total able-bodied between 36 and 45 is 2,475,000. So now of that 4 million, 21 to 35, their total of all trained personnel is 1,803,000. This is by night, this is the eve of war, autumn of 39. And they break down into regular troops, 684,000. Reservists who are fully trained, 410,000. And then the largest number is reservists with short training, which is 709,000. So their largest body of men that they can draw on is people who haven't been trained properly. Reservists with short training. Then, the, then reservists are fully trained. So these will be people in, in, you know, who might be needed in a steelworks or in on, on factory floors and who can't be drawn from the workforce to me, immediately. 
So there's obviously, immediately, it's not just there's a shortage of steel, there's a shortage of people to make the steel or fight. And before Barbarossa, you get that extraordinary thing where people, where soldiers are given working holidays, where they can go back to their factories to make ammunition because they're sh and weapons because they're short of ammunition and weapons, which, of course, means those soldiers, when they're then released to go back to the front, aren't properly trained because they've been working in a factory, aren't fit or whatever. And then the World War One veterans and reservists is the is is who the thirty six to forty fives are, and that's one million six hundred eighty thousand people. It, I when you when you start to look, you know, look at what this army is being drawn from, before they even get going. This 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 report makes it before they even get going, they've got real problems, haven't they? Yeah, real big manpower problems. It's it's so, it's very very interesting. Uh, and yeah. you know, um, uh, on the Hiller, uh, Muller Hillebrand, you know, yeah. he talks about that there are nine Panzer divisions all told. Yeah. In on first of September, nineteen thirty nine. You know, yeah. That is it. Um, he talks about the heavy artillery. You know, not not you know being <clears throat> seriously in arrears. Yeah. You know, in a, in a bad way, not not having enough ammunition, which yeah. we know about in the Polish campaign. You know, and that is made yeah. good to a certain extent by kind of summer of nineteen forty. Um, it says, nevertheless, prisoners of war believes this is uh, Muller Hillebrand believes yeah. that the regular troops could be considered well equipped and trained. Their confidence in their commanders and in Hitler was great, and the idea never occurred to them that they were to be employed for an unjust or unjustified cause. The number of people who were worried about future developments or who mistrusted Hitler's intentions was extremely small. So that's that's what they've sort of got going for them. But then the Blumentritt talks about, you know, uh, you know, there's all sorts of... The standard of musketry has deteriorated by 1939. Yeah, yeah. Um, the hitherto hever intensive close combat training has been massively neglected. Safety yeah. precautions for the firing of all arms with live ammunition um, were only relaxed shortly before the Second World War. This resulted yeah. in the infantry being less accustomed to live weapons or to the conditions prevailing in modern battle. Um, yeah. He talks about the 1939, the German infantry, as it entered the Second World War, had the following distinctive features. Advantages. A, the support of a strong air arm. Well, we know about that yeah. in the Luftwaffe yeah. as, a, as a close air support. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tactical Air Force. B, armoured and motorised divisions. C, increased mechanisation. But but that is from a from a from from nothing. So, yeah. you yeah. know, that's, that's not saying that much. D, um, many new special weapons. Yes, you know, so the 88mm is in dual-purpose gun, you know, brilliance of the MG34, um, MP38s, you know, submachine guns and all the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, e, great marching endurance. Well, we know they're all fit and well-trained physically. Um, and, and, you know, I remember talking to a number of veterans and they all talked about the physical training that they had to do, which yeah. is just relentless. Yeah. Um, an F good battle training. Disadvantages: A lack of internal cohesion, which I thought was a really interesting. One, don't know what that, that is means. Interesting. Quite. I mean, I know what it yeah. means, but I don't know quite what he's what he what he's attributing that to or driving at. Yeah, yeah. But does yeah. he mean you know that sort of you know Guderian and Co all the loggerheads of each other? And yeah, yeah. Lack yeah, of yeah, sort yeah. of coordination yeah. with other units. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. B lack of well trained officers and NCOs, which really surprised me because I thought the officer training was supposed to be really really good, but there's not enough of them. You know, because you do you do the whole Farn and Junker thing, don't you? You know, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's you know, really so you have to go off and be an NCO first and get yeah, your spurs. Really then you go yes, off to and Greek that, school. And and that whole and... idea, that whole idea that a you know a German captain is better trained than a British general. You know, in terms of right, uh, uh, but he's saying yeah, not. Yeah, right. And he was the guy who was involved in putting this all together. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, See, lack of um, uh, training in close combat. Right. D. Um, inadequate familiarisation with live ammunition. Right. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That, well, so that's, it's a sort of slightly mixed mixed message. And, you know, one of the yeah. problems he, he, he raises, and he's just talking about infantry, to be fair, uh, yeah. um, is that, you know, infantry is always competing with the other arms. You know, it's always yeah, the yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, the, the bottom of the bottom. Um, that get yeah. pulled into the infantry, you know, because yeah, yeah. anyone who's sort of, you know, posh or middle class and got half a brain goes into the Luftwaffe yes. and becomes a fighter pilot or, or yeah, yeah. you know, commands a ship or yeah. goes into the Panzer arm. So it's really the infantry he's talking about here. But, it, but, it, but it's just, 
it's fascinating, isn't it? Because you're getting, you know, what you're getting is is this this window on how they viewed it, and and obviously when you're talking about, I mean, a lot of these these post-war kind of foreign um, foreign studies, which which yeah. both the Americans and British sort yeah. of in, uh, instigated, particularly the Americans. Yeah. i.e. kind of sort of grilling down on, on German veterans about what they thought about kind of, you know, yeah. everything from different parts of the country. You know, th- there is an incentive to kind of sort of play down how much they liked Hitler and Nazis and, and yes. obviously and, and big themselves up because, yeah. you know, so so one has to take it all with a sort of, you know, a certain pinch of salt. But when you're talking about the mobilisation and the training of the army, there's not a sort of a huge amount of scope for putting a spin on it i mean it just no it is what it is isn't it i mean yeah, yeah. you know we yeah. mobilized yeah. this then and this is what we did and this is what we put into place and yeah. so you're getting i think a, a pretty kind of accurate picture and then when you're well, reading also, that being, on the back of reading the david Stahl, it, it all seems even more convincing i think well the, after all this isn't doc, this isn't little heart interviewing a load of generals who are all no going, it's not it's absolutely it, not all, who are all saying to him oh i used your ideas um basil and weren't you clever yes and by the way if you want t- to see me kind of you know reduce my jail sentence that'd be great it, 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 exactly you know it's not the other side of the hill it's not that which is the wellspring of all this i mean the point style makes is you know at the end of at the end of barbarossa you know halder makes that announcement of, about our glorious the glorious victories we've won and he says it's just a piece of it's that's just a piece of propaganda and historians have taken that as it's a victory. They, they've taken. He says that so much of how we, so much propaganda and post-war sort of um, uh, uh, legend burnishing by by the Germans, got got taken as what actually happened on the Eastern Front, rather yes. than the much more muddy and confused picture. I mean, even the the encirclements. You've got to enforce an encirclement, after all, haven't you? You've got to stop people getting out, and that involves yep. fighting. Yeah. And uh, uh, and so even those and what's interesting, Stiles, is that Hitler's going, we need to do smaller encirclements because they're easier to control. And the generals are going, ah, shut up. What yeah. do you what do you know? And yet after the war, it's all oh, Hitler didn't listen. He held us back. If we'd been allowed to do what we wanted to do, <laughs> you know, amazing, the, silly, that, the silly corporal, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 whereas in fact, the whole thing's poorly conceived. The army, the army thinks it's going to have a fantastic time fighting. Well, the generals do, you know, they're going to fill their boots and go for glory. I mean, it's it's so interesting. And yet, and so this sort of bureaucratic level of interrogation, I think, is uh, information is really, like you say, it's really, really interesting because because it's about mobilising and organising and, you know, and he's not, he's not saying they lack internal cohesion and that's why we lost. He's not doing that, is he? No. Because he's talking about before Poland. So... You know, uh, it, it, he's sort of making the case for having well-organised and well-mobilised people, isn't he? Because that, that, and also, I mean, in all of these, in all of you know, Poland, France, um, the Barbarossa, you basically, you basically got, uh, and and actually, the Battle of Britain in, in reflection is, but basically, you've got the, the people who are more organised, but only by a bit. <laughs> Tend to tend to do well on the face of it, don't they? I mean, it's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, it does. I just think it's fascinating looking at these these documents because basically, if you were sat down in a room with 1947 or 1946 with Major yeah. General uh, um, Burkhart Muller Hillebrand, yeah. this is what he'd tell you. you yeah, know, yeah, just after the war is over, so you get this yeah. this incredible window. I mean, I've got I've got loads of these these interrogations actually. I mean, I've got yeah. absolutely loads with Carl Wolf. Um, which is one of the reasons why I'm heading off to Italy in a minute is, yeah, yeah. is to do some stuff on him on the end, in the end of the war. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just it's just fascinating the language they use. These uh, and this yeah. all goes back to those you know what we're talking about with Hannah Fry these sort of buggings yeah. and interrogations yeah. and recordings of the conversations they had and what yeah. we learned from them. But but you know wh- whether you can take everything they say at face value or not, it, it's sort of almost to me that's sort of irrelevant because what you're getting is what they are saying their words at that time, which is very, very, very close to the conflict. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. opposed to talking to someone, you know, 60 years after the event. Yeah. When the, and, it, when and, the, it's, and it's very, when the, very Well, when the historiography and the legends have all been burnished or established and and set up and 
you know, you, you, of course you're going to, of course, later on, you're going to say we fought terribly well against the Russians, you know, because, because also you're in, a, you're in a NATO context by then, a Cold War context. And everything's, di- yeah. everything's different, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so my question, my big question for you, though, is because is I remember, yeah. you know, we've had discussion. I've, I've always said, said that it was yeah. over for Germany in November 1941. And you went, well, you know, but I think a little bit later, Stalingrad, really, you know, early 1943. I wondered whether, whether the, uh, whether the David Stalers made you change your, your mind on that a little bit. Um, no, because that they they can't. He win says, it. folding his arms. No, they, yeah, they can't. No, they can't win it. They, they, yeah, you, they've embarked on a course that will lead to them lose. But they could, you, you, you know, there is a point where maybe they could say, "All right, we will, we'll sue for peace, um, and we'll take, we'll take, you know, we'll take Belarus and eastern Ukraine, uh, western Ukraine, and." Uh, and Lithuanian Latvia, whatever, and that that'll be the new the new frontier of Germany. The Davina Dnipro line, exactly, and maybe and maybe or Brest, you know, Brestitovsk, basically where we got to the last time we fought um, one another, which you know, which after all, Lenin signed off on, you know, that 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 reduction of the Russian Empire that Lenin acceded to. So maybe that maybe that was you know that there's the. the maybe actually they haven't lost that it's that they it's they can't read where they are and we know why the germans can't read or understand where they've got themselves to because they didn't know where they were starting from so they're never going to know where they've ended up is the is is the is the truth isn't it so so no i think and also you know all the other theaters haven't swung into sort of decisive action and i think it is by the time but i think you know when sicily falls and Kursk has failed, and Hamburg is destroyed. You think the that's Battle it? of Latintico is over. That's when. That's when. That's you know. If you're, if you're, because after all, this war, the 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 whole point of the Second World War is is is, is escaped the bounds of Klaus Witzian rules of war a long time ago. The first section of it, you know, the fall of France, that that fits you. 1870 pattern, doesn't it? There's your Klaus Witzian decisive battle stuff because everyone's playing by the rules at that point and then they, the Germans throw the rules out the window. Um, and I, But I think by 43, by the time you've had those climactic battles that tell you you've... They, they, they're the things that tell you you've lost and that's when they double down. That's yep. my feeling. <laughs> but yeah, no, fair enough. in answer to your question, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been good looking at those docs, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting. Fascinating. Anyway, um, uh, what have we got on Thursday? We've got... We've got, we've got a double header because we've got the amazing Des Curtis. He's a navigator oh, yeah. mosquito and he oh, was yeah. that's absolutely right. amazing. I mean, that's right. properly, properly good. And that's running on to that's running on to Friday, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because well? his storytelling uh, was so good, is, I didn't want him to stop. Yeah. So we, we, yeah, that's we did right. two yeah. sessions. Yeah, so mosquito fans... Um, uh, oh, tune it's, into t- that. It's, it's really terrific. Yeah. Really oh, terrific. He's got now, a hell of you, a story. You know our our, our good friend Joe Coles at, at yeah. Hushkit. Of course. He's setting he's setting up a, a Hushkit um a podcast. He's following, you know, clearly following in our on our coattails. Yeah, but um uh, I did a bit for him the other day. And and then <laughs> it's very Joe this. He's got it the wrong way around. He then posts on Twitter, is anyone good at audio engineering? I need help with a podcast. And a bloke and who's into aviation, a bloke pops up and goes, I'm really into aviation and I'm an audio engineer. It turns out he's, he's Foster Maynard's grandson. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. The power of Twitter, eh? The power of Twitter, yeah, bringing brilliant. people together, the Second World War, touching everyone's lives exactly. in a peculiar way. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that bombshell. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will see you all again soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio.